when you have a whole group of, of people in 2019 who believe that Jesus is literally going to come back, go to Israel, and then beeline it directly to Missouri, you've lost me. A lot of sports fans obviously don't know a lot about distance running, obviously. Um, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. But in 1954, Sir Roger Bannister may have heard the name before. He was just Roger Bannister at this time, but after he broke the four-minute mile in 1954, the Queen added the title Sir to his name, same thing she's done for Nick Faldo, same thing she's done for Paul McCartney. But in 1954, Sir Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile as we welcome you to this 406th episode of Unscripted with Mike and Chris. Mike Jansen, Chris Fluke with you. In 1969, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. In 2009, Usain Bolt runs the 100-meter dash in 9.58 seconds, breaking the 10-second barrier. That's unbelievable. Under 10 seconds to run 100 meters. And earlier on Saturday morning, a marathoner by the name of... Do you have any idea how to pronounce I've been meaning this? to look up and see how someone says this, but uh, yeah. I'm going to guess that it's Eliud Kipchoge, if, yeah. I, if I know how I, a lot of uh, like Kenyans right. uh, are pronounced. I think that's beautifully. Thank you. I think that was beautifully done. But um, this young man on Saturday morning ran a 26.2-mile marathon in the unbelievable time of one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds to run 26.2 miles, that is freaking remarkable. Congratulations to him. And again, that's why I was kind of giving you the, you know, 1954, someone breaks the four-minute mile. 69, someone walks on the moon. 2009, Usain Bolt runs 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. And this young man runs a 26.2-meter marathon under two hours. That is un that's unfathomable. I mean, you run 26 miles under two, min under two hours. 40 kilometers. That's 40 kilometers. That's correct. 40 kilometers, 26.2 miles in under two hours. Congratulations. I mean, that goes up there with some of the greatest, well, obviously, you, it's the greatest marathon time of all time. Uh, the first guy to break two hours running a marathon, that's freaking amazing. That goes down as one of the greatest sports accomplishments in history, just like some of the others. Bannister breaking the four-minute mile and Usain Bolt running the 100 meters in under 10 seconds. That is unbelievable. And being the crack executive producer that he is, I think Chris has got some more info on this guy. Again, runs a 26.2-mile marathon in one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. Sir, the floor is yours. Sure. So now this was not a marathon with a bunch of people running in it. This it was, doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. But this was an engineered effect. Yeah. Uh, this was a, a, a concerted effort to try to see if a human being could do it in under two hours. 
And now they did give him all sorts of advantages. And this does not take away anything from this, but he was the only guy officially running in the marathon. But they did a few things to help him out. So they had some pace runners with him. So they had some other elite marathon runners and they would kind of cycle in and out. They'd get a ride for a bit and, and then they would join in again and they'd run with him for a bit. And so there'd be a group of them. And so that helped break the wind resistance a little bit because they'd be running kind of ahead of him a little bit. So that helps a little. Also, when you get, when you uh, run and try to set an official world record, which this will not count as a world no, record. No, understood. understood. But um, if you do, like you're not allowed to drink water during it, which is really too bad. You're not allowed to do anything wow. else. So, so here he was allowed to, they gave him water while he's running, which to me, no matter what you tell me, water is not a performance enhancing drug. And uh, they had like little energy gels he could kind of have to, for a little bit of energy there, but no drugs or anything. But he had that type of stuff. Um, and I don't know if they did this this time, but they had tried this before with him in Italy, and I guess he didn't get it. But th- at that point, they had had a a pace car with a green laser, so you could he could see exactly where he had to be to okay. be on pace for it or whatever. Right. And so they they worked on all this. But now, even with all of these advantages, oh, and even I think it was Nike. He's a Nike athlete too. I think Nike even like made special shoes. They took the designs from like the 10 greatest marathoners ever and what they liked in a shoe and combined them into one special shoe and they made it for this guy. And so the thing is though, it's not like this is just some random dude and then they gave him these advantages and then he increased his time by an hour. This is the current legitimate world record holder. Uh, So his world record official time uh, from other marathons is two hours, one minute and uh, 39 or 40 seconds. So they did all this just to shave two minutes off the time. So it's not like the guy was just like it, it helped him by half an hour or something. It's the world record holder, give him a bunch of advantages and he can increase his time by two minutes. So, I mean, it was fair stuff like water and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, an amazing accomplishment. The guy seems really neat. He's 34 years old. Uh, and of course, for those of you who don't know, I, I remember learning this in grade eight or seven, even social studies. So it's called a marathon because it was a run from Marathon, Greece to right. Athens, Greece. I knew that. Uh, yeah. There was a soldier named Pheidippides. I didn't know that. There you go. And uh, and yeah, he was a soldier and he wanted to tell of an important Greek victory. And he ran the 40 kilometers or the 26 miles, told the news and then collapsed and died. <laughs> and so that's why it's called a marathon, of course. Wow. And uh, he said that, uh, so today this Eliud Kipchoge, and I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, but uh, he said, I am the happiest man. He said he wanted to do it to inspire people that no human is limited. And he, he just seems like a pretty interesting guy. Um, the the Kenyan government and the Kenyan president congratulated him. Um, he also said there were... Uh, he also wanted to address the critics of the attempt because he got to have water and he got to have this help or whatever. So he said, the law of nature cannot allow all human beings to think together. In breaking the two-hour barrier, I want to open minds to think that no human is limited. All our minds, all our thoughts are parallel, but I respect everybody's thoughts. Well, <clears throat> regardless, it's a hell of an effort and a hell of an accomplishment. And congratulations to the 34-year-old man. I guess we can't call him a young man, but younger than me, but um, congratulations to do that, to do something that no one has ever done. Even with water, it doesn't matter. Hell of an accomplishment, and um, again, congratulations. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does the next time. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you should absolutely be able allowed to have water when running a marathon. Yeah. 
Why I mean, not? Come on. Like, I mean, yeah. You're not taking a shot in the ass. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, let's go. I mean, yeah. it's water. Yeah. Um, a lot of things to talk about uh, on this 406th episode of Unscripted with Mike and Chris. We're both here. And again, I'd like to extend uh, best wishes to all Canadian listeners and Canadians around the world uh, as we celebrate the Thanksgiving weekend in Canada. Hope everybody makes it back safely and soundly uh, on Tuesday to their respective whatever you do on Tuesdays. But uh, again, have a great uh, Thanksgiving long weekend here in Canada. And for our Canadians living abroad, uh, obviously, happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Um, a lot of things to talk about. I want to start, you know, um, one of the problems this year in the National Football League, and it started in the exhibition, and it has continued now through, this is the week six of the National Football League season. Um, the officiating in the National Football League has been well, let's just say uneven, and that's being very, very kind. Um, I don't think, because of all the rules changes and and with the idea of gearing the game to make it as safe as possible, I think both the Zebras, players, coaches, general managers, everybody involved with the 32 NFL teams, and I don't even know how many referees there are. I don't care. But I don't think everybody has a firm grasp as to what the rules really are. I really don't. I have never seen in my life as many offensive pass interference plays are getting called. Uh, it's gotten to the point, and again, I always, I always divert back to the Green Bay Packers because I watch the Packers you know, with much more interest than I do the other 31 teams in the National Football League. So when the Packers are on, I'm watching what the offensive line is doing. I'm watching what the defense is doing. I'm watching when they switch to a nickel package and they go to a dime package. And I'm watching what the corner and the slot corner are doing and who they're taking out of a break. And, you know, they're... You know, I used to say this all the time, and I'll go back 20-some years to my radio show as I said this all the time. Unfortunately, it's now becoming, 25 years later, it's becoming more de facto of what we're living in here in 2019 than back in the mid to late 90s. I believe in my heart of hearts that if you had a dedicated zebra, you could call a penalty on every single play in a National Football League game. You could call holding. You could call a myriad of different penalties on every play. And unfortunately, here in 2019, it's getting to that. Um, I will never apologize for being a homer in regard to the Green Bay Packers, but we were the beneficiary of some calls last week in the Dallas game that I thought were preposterous. Dallas was too. In fairness, there were some phantom calls that I'm scratching my head going, I hate the Cowboys, but what did the guy do? Um, a couple that come to mind, Jair Alexander got a couple of, of pass interference, but then Amari Cooper had a very, and it turned out to be a bit of a controversial offensive pass interference penalty against him. And I'm still trying to figure, and I'm not a Coop, I'm not a Cowboy fan, I'm not a Cooper fan, but I am a fan of the National Football League, and I'm still trying to find out what Cooper did on this particular play. I mean, guys, we, we, this is still football, and there's going to be contact on every play. 
and I think in the off season, there really needs to be some some communication and some study involving the National Football League, the NFL Players Association, and the NFL Referees Association so all of these components can get on the same page because I do not believe everybody is singing from the same playbook and it leads to confusion and it leads to some really I would imagine intense discussions and you know you know something's going on when Jason Garrett gets a 15-yard penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct because on a pass interference call in the third quarter of the Packers Cowboys game last week Jason for him went nuts on a referee and got a 15-yard penalty I don't know what the answer is, but I think part of the solution is sitting these three components in a room in the offseason and make sure that everybody knows what we are and what we aren't going to call moving forward in the, for the 2020-2021 season because right now the games are taking too long again. And I'm telling you, folks, a zebra is going to die out there this year. Someone's going to get nailed because you are just... There is so much frustration on the field, in the press boxes, in the coaches' boxes, in the owners' boxes. There's so much confusion right now. And when everybody's confused, that leads, in my opinion, to some mayhem coming up in this season of the National Football League. Yeah, well, the only solution long-term is to make the penalties uh, more objective if possible. Make it so they have to be really specific and so that really you can get uh, robots or sensors or something to call them because... Humans yeah. make way too many mistakes. There's way too many judgment calls. There's way too much subjectivity. And, uh, yeah, the refs have been just uh, absolutely terrible. There was a play, when was it? Was it on Monday night, I think? I can't remember where it, when it was now. There's been so many bad ones. But, you know, they, they've got this thing now because of that play in the Rams and Saints last oh, year. Yeah, yeah. They've got all these where you can review uh, pass interference. But they came up with the weird idea that, well... We, you can challenge it, but we're only going to overturn it if it's really blatant. So there's instances where people are challenging it, and it turns out it is, it does qualify technically as pass interference, but they won't call it because it's not egregious enough. Right, right. You know, because it's basically like, well, we kind of want to have it both ways. We kind of want to have it like the old days, but we just want to be able to review it so we could have in there. But like this last one I saw was so blatant, and they kept the call in the field, and it was inexcusable, and even the announcers were dumbfounded. Right. That by that standard, I'm not sure if they would have overturned the Rams and Saints one, because this one was just as bad as that to me. And so there's no guarantee that would have fixed the problem. But you can't do that. You can't say, well, we're going to review it. And even if we think it is past interference, we're not going to overturn it unless it's a certain amount of how egregious it is. That makes no sense, guys. If you're going to have review and you're going to go to the trouble and waste our time reviewing it anyway, then just make whatever the right call is. Don't, I mean, talk about overthinking it. This is totally ridiculous. And again, we need dedicated replay officials up there. We don't need old men jogging to the sidelines and squinting at tablets or anything. We need dedicated replay officials. And even this is not perfect either. But we need at the very least this. And they can call stuff and get it right right away. And it's not about, 
you know, how egregious it was or anything. You get the call right, and that's it. But we need to make it more objective. We, I mean, pass interference. We need to be really specific with it. Like, did you touch it? Did you grab a guy or touch a guy in this way specifically? Did you do this with your arm? It has to be really detailed. And I'm sorry, but the current NFL brain trust is not the group that's up to the job because they can't even define what a catch is, never mind what pass interference is. So if you can't define what a catch is, uh, I don't really trust you to do anything more complicated than that. So uh, someday maybe we'll get people smart enough that they can actually define what a catch is and some other things, and we could actually make it so it is more objective and be something that's not just the judgment call of random stupid old men. Eagles and Vikings are uh, renewing acquaintances with each other on Sunday afternoon at uh, U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. The Eagles were my preseason choice to win the Super Bowl. I still think they can accomplish it. Um, They've had some injuries. They've been decimated. But you know all the players on the Eagles. Um, The Vikings, um, Chris mentioned it, and he's absolutely correct, that um, the Vikings are... It just there's there's a night and day difference in regard to the Minnesota Vikings in regard to how they play on the road versus obviously how they play at home. They look like Super Bowl contenders when they're at home, and uh, when they're on the road, even with that great defense, they look like they're more suited to be headed to the lottery if the NFL had a lottery. This week, the Eagles linebacker Zach Brown, who happened to be a former teammate with uh, Kirk Cousins, the current quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings. Zach Brown and Cousins were teammates at one time years ago with the Washington Redskins. And Zach Brown obviously knew about Kirk Cousins from those days back in Washington, but he also probably, he left Washington before Cousins did, so Zach Brown knows not only as a teammate, but also as an opponent, he knows the good, the bad, and the ugly involving the former uh, Michigan State quarterback who now, of course, is running the Vikings offense. I found it kind of funny, but I'm I'm totally on board with this guy. I got to be honest, and I think Chris will be too. Zach Brown comes out and says that quarterback Kirk Cousins, from his past experience, both as a teammate as and as an opponent, he says, and I quote, that quarterback Kirk Cousins is the weakest part of the Vikings offense, end quote. Um, we know that the Vikings are a basically a run team now. They've got uh, Delvin Cook, who's probably, I don't know right off the top of my head, but my, my educated guess would be he's the leading yards gainer right now in the National Football League with the great start that he has had. The problem in Minnesota is that you've dedicated millions of, millions of dollars to their two wideouts. One of them is an all-pro. One is an aspiring all-pro. Adam Thielen is the all-pro. Stefan Diggs thinks he's an all-pro. And potentially down the line, he probably could be. But they're beginning, they have kind of in their eyes been forgotten about in John DeFilippo's offense in Minnesota. And I don't blame DeFilippo because I think two things. First of all, DeFilippo is one of the brightest offensive minds in football. He was the offensive coordinator a couple of years ago for the Philadelphia Eagles, and they won a Super Bowl. So obviously he knows what he's doing. But you've got to work with what's working, and what's not working right now is Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins, and again, I I, I know this always comes back with me, and I, I know this. 
But it comes back to dollars and cents. It comes back to money. And if you want to be pissed off at somebody in Minnesota, I think you got to look a little higher than John D. Filippo, offensive coordinator, or Mike Zimmer, head coach. I think you got to go up to the owner's box. Ziggy Wilf and his son Mark. Because those were the two yahoos that signed off on Kirk Cousins' three-year, $84 million, fully guaranteed contract. We know Bo Levi isn't coming in on his white Stampeder horse to save the day. They have to be committed to this guy for three years because even if they trade him, release him, shoot him, somebody's still getting $84 million over the three years of term of that contract. So yes, Kirk Cousins is the problem in Minnesota. But again, it probably goes back to a combination of Rick Spielman, the general manager, and the Wolves, the Wilfs, excuse me, because those are the, probably the three guys that signed off on something that they saw from Kirk Cousins that, and remember, the Vikings don't have, the Vikings are one of two teams in National Football League history that have been to four Super Bowls and lost all four. The Buffalo Bills obviously being the other. But the Vikings have not had an Aaron Rodgers, a Brett, well, they had Brett Favre, but it wasn't, it wasn't primetime Brett Favre that they had at the end of Favre's career. It was the end of career Brett Favre. But they have not had a, a guy in Minnesota that you associate or affiliate with that organization. They have not had anybody like that going back to the early 70s with Fran Tarkington when they were going to Super Bowls. The Vikings have always had good personnel, good defenses, but they've always been missing that quarterback position. Whether it be Dante Culpepper or Tommy Kramer or Steve Dills or... Uh, you know, a bunch of other washed-up ex-jocks. The Vikings have never had that prima donna, I can win a championship. They've never had a Tom Brady. They've never had an Aaron Rodgers. They've never had They've never had a Brett Favre. They've never had a Drew Brees. They've never had the upper echelon of guys throwing the football around. That's the problem. I've got to blame the Vikings front office for this because I think, and I think if we had... Ziggy and Mark Wilf sitting here right now, I would hope that they'd be man enough to realize that A, they made a mistake, and B, they could have done a lot better with $84 million than Kirk Cousins. Well, you brought it up, but if there's one good thing about that contract, it's that it prevents the temptation to have the starting quarterback be Bo Levi Mitchell, <laughs> because that might have been even worse than this. And like I say, Kirk Cousins beats up on bad teams really well, right. and uh, even against the Eagles, like I said, I think that he's going to do really well uh, torching that depleted secondary. I don't see why he wouldn't. At home, um, should his guys should be open, and there's a lot to like. But I mean, as for that guy's comments, I mean, yeah, there's other than certain members of the O line, there's no one else to blame. I mean, well, he, you, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but you're you're exactly right. A great point. I want you to continue on it. The second weakest part since the great Vikings teams of the 70s is that they've never had a dominating offensive line. The, the, in the 70s, under the Purple People Leaders, when they had the great defense with Alan Page and Jim Marshall, and you know all those guys, but they had an offensive line with Ron Yeri and Mick Tinglehoff, and they were sensational. But they have never had an offensive line like that since. 
Yeah, they're never known for that at all. But Delvin Cook doesn't matter. He's playing so well this year. Doesn't really matter. And and Thielen and Diggs, you know, they haven't got enough passes in certain games, but there have been some games that have been very good. And when they get the ball, then they do really well. And when they get the ball even thrown their direction, they do very well. But yeah, Kirk Cousins has a lot of issues. And it's too bad because, you know, I he just seems like a different guy now. I really liked him when he was just a pure backup and he he would come in and finish off or win games and at the end and I'm like man this is the best backup quarterback in the league and and today he still might be the best backup quarterback in the league but he's getting paid starting quarterback money and uh, obviously that 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 uh, contract was ridiculous i mean if you had said if you had reserved that contract for Patrick Mahomes yeah. maybe maybe then we're talking or like a Russell Wilson or something but Kirk Cousins just didn't do even close to enough like to for that amount of money or for the fully guaranteed thing and to set a precedent for Kirk Cousins was just completely reckless and irresponsible and incredibly selfish honestly and it was just a terrible move and I'm glad that they're getting bitten in the ass for it because it didn't deserve to be a good move and it didn't deserve to be rewarded and so yeah like people like to make fun of well if he deserves that money, $84 million over three years. And if Dakota Prescott, uh, you know, is worth $40 million a year in his mind, then everyone on Twitter was just making the joke when these guys were saying this stuff. Everyone's just saying, well, I guess that means Patrick Mahomes deserves $100 million a year in controlling interest in the franchise then. Right, absolutely. Right? I mean, so, because that's how much better he is than Kirk Cousins. No one's going to compare those two. So, then, by the way, that's going to be an interesting thing. What is that Patrick Mahomes contract going to oh look like? Oh, my God. Oh my God. I, I can't even, I can't count that high. Um, but real quick, um, I want to get onto some other topics, but there is a reason that Kirk cousin was taken in the fourth round and right off the top of my head, right off the top of my head, knowing that Tom Brady was the 100th draft pick in his draft year, which was in the sixth round, I believe something like yeah, that. 199. I mean, excuse me. I, I meant, but whatever. But yeah, six, I knew he was in the round. sixth round. Uh, Dakota Prescott was in the fourth round. I get that. But generally, your stud quarterbacks are first or second round at worst. Oh, yeah. You don't see a lot of fourth round draft picks getting $84 million guaranteed. And I think, again, there's a problem. Kirk Cousins was a serviceable quarterback at Michigan State. But again, it was a defensive-dominated, run-dominated team when he was at Michigan State. And... You know, you hear that term game manager. This guy is the poster child for game management in regard to Kirk Cousins. And again, outside of Brady and Prescott, right off the top of my head, think about all the other great quarterbacks currently employed by an NFL team. And most of them are in the first round, uh, a couple maybe in the second. But generally speaking, you don't get a stud quarterback in the fourth round. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is. Um one other thing, I it's really sad in my estimation that we need to still talk about this in the year 2019, and you know my feelings about Salt Lake City and how weird it is there. It's just a weird place. I've told you about my first drive to Calgary from Las Vegas, and I couldn't get a Coke in Salt Lake City because they don't drink caffeine. Um, I've told you about my first airplane flight from Vegas to Salt Lake City, and I had that much beer in the bottom of a glass, and they wouldn't serve me another one at the famous one airport bar in Salt Lake City that they wouldn't serve me another one because I hadn't finished my first one. 
it's a weird place. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. It's weird. Um, but regardless of that, and regardless of the weirdness and the uniqueness is maybe a better word about the BYU campus and the Brigham Young University. And Chris has told you the history about BYU and, and he's told you about the 24 year old kid who was, you know, whatever, but BYU has been playing football now for almost a century. Actually, it's 97 years. They've been playing organized college football at BYU and this Saturday, and I don't even know who they're playing and I don't really give a damn. But BYU, as I just mentioned, has been playing football for 97 seasons. And on this Saturday, they will be starting their first black quarterback. Now, I am so tired of of having to... And it's news because, yes, it's BYU. And, yes, it's a black quarterback at an all... Basically an all-white school. And basically to get into BYU... 99.9% of all the students that attend BYU are part of the uh, uh, Mormon church or the uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or whatever the hell it is. And I don't mean disrespect to it. I do. Okay, you do. Um, And I'm right there with you. I'm making fun of it. But it's just kind of sad that we're sitting here in 2019, and even with the unique circumstances around BYU, I think we should just worry about the young... And yes, first of all, this young man is a Mormon. Yes, this young man's father played football in the 80s at BYU. Um, so there is, you know, there is some connectivity there. But I just wish that we would allow the young man to be the quarterback of BYU on this Saturday and not worry about his skin color. But I guess we have to because it's BYU. But I hope this young man goes out and has a hell of a game. Whoever they're playing on Saturday, I hope he does very, very well. Well, I'd like to see him be successful, but I can never cheer for BYU as a school, certainly. Uh, obviously. Agreed. Obviously. I mean, yes, and you, you did allude to uh, the 21-year-old con artist, Joseph Smith, who started there you go. the Mormon religion after he had failed, uh, or at least gotten caught selling magic crystals to people. <laughs> and and look, when you have a whole group of, of people in 2019 who believe that Jesus is literally going to come back, go to Israel, and then beeline it directly to Missouri. <laughs> You've lost me. And that's it. <laughs> You're funny. You're a funny guy. Um, before we get out of here on this 406th episode of Unscripted, and we're not going down to uh, BYU football, um, our buddy... Antonio Brown, he's back in the news again. Um, You know, this guy, he just doesn't get it. Despite saying last month that he wouldn't play in the National Football League anymore after his release from the Patriots, he now says that he wants to resolve his off-the-field issues in the next two weeks, 14 days, so that he can sign with another NFL team. And here's the funny part. This whole thing has been funny, but this is the funny part of this part of the funny story. He also went on to say that he would reconsider signing with the Patriots. How white of him. (laughs) Although he admits that that might not be an option. Oh, by the way, if you didn't know, if you've been living under a rock or a stone for the last couple of months, by the way, Mr. Brown filed eight grievances this week against the Raiders and the Patriots organizations, totaling $39.775 million in a combination of lost salary, bonuses, and guaranteed money. Two things. 
I don't think he'll see a dime of that money because he screwed up himself. And second of all, I think he should start looking about, if he wants to play football again, he should start maybe calling Mr. McMahon and see if he can get into the XFL. But then again, Mr. McMahon doesn't take guys with criminal records. And I don't know if Antonio Brown has one, but he's probably close to getting one somewhere. But I don't think, again, he'll see another day in the National Football League. Well, he's still got a rape investigation pending against him, at least one. At least from at least one woman, if not two or three, and so uh, I, I, you know what? It's funny because it was for a couple of weeks there. I was so sick. It's every day. It's just every Antonio day. Brown. Antonio I know. Brown. And now you brought up his name, and I thought, oh, geez, I haven't heard about him in a couple of weeks at least. So it's been nice. It was pretty funny because uh, you know he's trying to uh, he's trying to see if people miss him. I've noticed him on Twitter lately. And, you know, when people like this with a big ego like that, they think that the world can't get by without them. They think that the NFL can't miss can't Antonio Brown. Can't exist without Antonio yeah. Brown. And yet, uh, even with all of the over-hyped, uh, uh, you know, stuff and all the stories that extended, I think, too long as it was, all of a sudden, everyone forgot about him. Mm-hmm. And a year ago at this time, he was the top receiver in the world. And now, it was funny because he put on Twitter you know, kind of fishing for attention, he put something like, uh, y'all miss me on your fantasy teams? And some guy wrote back and he said, I traded you for DJ Chark after week one and I haven't (laughs) regretted it for one day. (laughs) Which to me is just fantastic. And he's right. DJ Chark's been a fantasy stud this year. And I mean, I I love that comment. I thought that was brilliant. And and go, guy. Yeah. And Antonio Brown needs to know that the world and the NFL are going to continue on just fine without him. And we don't need his bullshit anymore. And we don't need prima donna receivers to be great. And it's it, it's great where to see someone like this just, uh, you know, kind of get uh, ostracized and exiled from the league. I'm starting to think we might not see him again because the teams that I would expect uh, would take the guy or have already had him. Like you think about the <laughs> the badass Raiders. Well, they're not taking him. And you think about the ultimate in reclamation projects that you can find a new use for and and teach proper culture. That's the Patriots. And those are the two teams that have had to have him in his twilight weird ass Renaissance years. And who I don't know who else is going to take him, but I don't think he's worth the headache. I really don't. And. Uh, it's it's good if he doesn't play soon it's going to get to the point almost like Kaepernick where it's like well you were good but now time's passed and now you're older and now we don't even know if you're good anyway are you worth all the headaches that go with having you don't think you really are and uh, you know it's easy to think well now you're just going to be old and rusty and it's going to happen pretty fast probably so uh, yeah he might be done I, I this is this is the quickest fall from grace other than something really sudden like the OJ thing or something like that in terms of a guy just being, and and this is notwithstanding the rape thing. Let's say that the rape thing hasn't happened or doesn't happen or whatever. Right. Even without that, he still had this crazy fall from grace. And uh, I don't know if I've ever seen it happen this suddenly. And then from this height, it's not like the guy was average. Like he was like the best receiver in the world. And um, yeah, I, I I hope we've, uh, we haven't heard the last, but I hope we never see him play again. I'm right there with you, and before we get out of here on this uh, 406th episode of our little program, I do want to, I think it's, um, I think this is appropriate. I have been very hard over the last number of years of Unscripted on the Ball family, but most of my angst has to go toward the father, LeVar. He's an idiot. He's a moron. 
He's a career 2.0 scorer when he played one year when he was an undergraduate at Washington State University. Um, I can't stand the man. I have nothing but ill will toward him. And a byproduct of the old man happens to be obviously the three sons. Lonzo Ball, who was taken second overall out of UCLA a couple of years ago by the Lakers. And then there's a Lamelo, and there's one other, and I don't give a damn. Uh, Leangelo. Yeah, little Angelo, yeah. And actually, the second one is supposedly has really grown up and really he could be in contention for being the number one overall pick next year in the NBA draft. LaMelo. He's grown up. He's grown up physically. He's grown up between the ears and he has really, really done some nice things. And some people are believing he has grown up enough now and his skills have, have uh, advanced enough that he could be a potential number one overall pick in next, next June's draft in the NBA. That's still to be seen, but this comment is about Lonzo Ball. Lonzo Ball, um, you know, here's a young man that can play the game, no question, had a celebrated one-year run at UCLA, comes out as the number two overall pick in the 17 NBA draft, and let's just say his first two years in Los Angeles were nondescript. Missed a lot of games with injuries, but... His father said some preposterous things that he's better than Jordan. And with Lonzo in the lineup, we're going to be making multiple runs to NBA championships. And that was even before LBJ came onto the roster. And I don't know how anybody, any kid, could survive under that kind of pressure. And especially when it's coming from your own father, for Christ's sake. Lonzo Ball came out on Friday and said, and remember, he was traded back in July uh, to the New Orleans Pelicans as part of a big trade involving four players and draft picks and Anthony Davis coming back to the Southland to team up with LeBron James and make the Lakers great again. Lonzo Ball comes out on Friday and says, and I quote, I didn't live up to the draft hype with the Lakers. He goes on to say that I'm now happy to be out of L.A. for the first time in my life. Um... I think, first of all, we've got to give Lonzo Ball some credit for living in that crazy Chino Hills house with his father. I don't believe how anybody could survive under that kind of scrutiny and those kind of expectations. And remember, this kid played one year of college ball, so when he was drafted into the NBA, he's at the ripe old age of 19 years old. How can you expect a 19-year-old kid from Los Angeles going in to save the Lakers franchise, one of the marquee franchises, obviously, in the NBA. And here's a local kid that, with one year of college ball under his belt, he's supposed to go in and, at that time, break the Lakers' five-year run of missing the playoffs. Now that run has hit seven or six or whatever, but it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is I have to give some props here to Lonzo Ball for growing up. I think he's going to be a very serviceable point guard in the NBA, and as long as he gets to continue to throw passes to Zion Williamson in New Orleans and work with an offensive-minded coach like Elvin Gentry, I think he's going to be fine, and I think he's going to do some great things playing point guard in New Orleans, away from that screwball father of his, and I think Lonzo Ball is going to make something of himself, hopefully, in the NBA. Well, 
I, I mean, I, I know that our buddy Ryan gets really tired of hearing about LeVar Ball and hopes we never talk about him again. Well, but, <laughs> I, and I agree, I agree. But this is more about Lonzo Ball. And Lonzo Ball, I can't believe the things that he's had to endure during his first two years. And I think it goes back even farther than that. I think it goes back to his days as a, as a high school All-American at Chino Hills High School in Los Angeles and then going on to UCLA where he was supposed to be the next next great Bruin. He only plays one year. Um, I just think this kid has gone under and, and been exposed to things that a normal 18- and 19-year-old shouldn't have to be. And when your father is opening up his big mouth of crap and nothing but a big bunch of crap comes out of it, I just don't know how anybody could have survived under that kind of pretense. Yeah, and, you know, you really start to see him sort of assert himself, and I think he was just, you know, raised in that environment, and that's what you know as you grow up. But then uh, they they showed a video of him talking to his dad and telling him that Big Baller Brand is dead and, like, you know, he wears Nike because it's better or whatever. And he just, uh, you can see he's starting to... Uh, you know, these guys are starting to kind of rebel and kind of get out from under their father's shadow, and he's rapidly losing influence on them. And, you know, he tried to make his own basketball league, which yep. was insane. Like, the, talk about a guy who's got an overinflated ego. You know, he's like renting out entire arenas and uh, getting, you know, 100 people there max, and most of them, I think, were there to watch their kids or whatever. And uh, the big baller brand was an interesting idea. Like, you know, the idea of charging way too much for a product uh, just because of the name and, uh, you know, just to say, okay, well, the person put in so that you know that uh, your friends know that you put out that kind of money to get it uh, is an interesting idea. It didn't quite work in the end. But yeah, I, I'm so glad to see his sons get out from under him and hopefully get off on their own. And uh, I think he's going to be in the end, I think he's going to be somewhat ostracized i don't even know if his sons are going to want to talk to him after they get out in the real world and away from him so that'll be nice to see but yeah it's nice to see the uh spectacular failure supernova of lavar ball you know it's funny you know that the big baller brand shoe is not real good when lonzo ball comes out this summer and says i had to change shoes every quarter because the shoe (laughs) kept falling apart yeah you know, that's not really a ringing endorsement from an NBA player when you've got to switch shoes every quarter because at the end of the first quarter, your shoes <laughs> explode. Um, yeah, and they're $500 just, shoes. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I think this guy has been under a lot of pressure and a lot of focus. And uh, I'm hoping now that some of that focus is off of him now in New Orleans versus Los Angeles. And now maybe he can just, first of all, get healthy. But then second of all, just concentrate on playing basketball. And I think he's going to do some great things in the NBA and for the Pelicans organization. Mm -hmm. We've got to run on this 406th episode of Unscripted. Free Forum Friday is next as we wrap up another good week of shows here on Unscripted with Mike and Chris. Having said all that, for the executive producer of Unscripted, Mr. Chris Fluke, I'm Mike Jansen. Until next time.